My name is Edward Wolcher. I'm the curator of lectures at Town Hall Seattle, and I am so honored to welcome you to tonight's program with Jason Colby, presented by Town Hall in partnership with our friends at the Elliott Bay Book Company, who are set up in the lobby over there. Now to introduce our program and to give us some more context about orcas in our state is Dr. Thomas Peirce, who goes by Les. He is the governor-appointed co-chair of the Governor's Orca Recovery Task Force, having previously served for 15 years of, as the president of the Evergreen State College, one of my favorite institutions in Washington State, go gooey ducks. Uh, please welcome Dr. Peirce to the stage. Thank you, Ed. Good evening, everyone. It's so nice to be with you. 55 years ago, I came to the state of Washington from the high plains deserts of the state of Idaho. I'm a third generation Idahoan from Pocatello. And in 1972, I was a staff member at Washington State University a young fellow who had never been to the Salish Sea or the Puget Sound when I first came over to the wet side, as we would refer to it in those days. And I'll never forget a friend of mine who had a boat at Stanley Park invited me to spend 10 days with him and his family on the coast. And it was during that period that I first saw the orcas. And I have never forgotten the impact, the marvel, the marvelous um, power and the way they plied the water. <clears throat> I remember going home and talking to my friends and family in the sagebrush about those wonderful animals. And I think now that in 1972, 40 years before that, the uh, southern resident killer whales numbered almost 200. And by 95, they were under 100. All the actions now that are taken when these fine animals are down to 76 speaks to the important concern that the governor had when he established the Orca Task Force to look at how we could begin to take action at the major challenges that face these wonderful animals. Food, the toxin in the Salish Sea and the Puget Sound, and noise population and vessels, and the reality that the Chinook salmon are the primary source of food for these wonderful animals, and how we go about attempting to reverse this huge challenge and threat to these wonderful creatures. The reality is that our destiny is connected with these wonderful creatures. The health of our sound, our economy, are all associated and intertwined. And 
as we see the challenges they have, having difficulty finding food, trying to survive in toxic water, and being able to increasingly being unable to be able to find their prey because of the increased noise, tells us that we have to begin to try to take steps to really address this challenge because it is a challenge for us as well. My co-chair, Stephanie Celine, is here with me. Stephanie, would you please stand up? I want people to, to and, and, and we have established over 50 individuals in the state who have broken into work groups to look at issues of toxins in the sound, noise, and the issue of the Chinook, and the issue of food and all that comes with those challenges. And when Town Hall announced this wonderful uh, event with Jason, we thought, what a wonderful time to introduce our work. The governor has asked us to have a report uh, by the end of October so that in November he can receive the final report and have it ready for the legislature for action. So many of the people that are involved in this effort say, for so long we've kicked the can down the road. We recognize that this is very challenging issue. It raises issues about our dams. It raises issues around how we balance our commerce and our recreation um, with the lives of these animals. It raises the issue of what are the manner in which we can bring the endangered Chinook back to health. Hatcheries, wild salmon, and all of these groups, the three work groups, are working in each of these issues with scientists, and we've brought together a diverse group of people from commerce, citizens, from public agencies, the tribes, all have sat down at the table and agreed to try as hard as they can to come up with recommendations. We know that some will be controversial. We know that we're going to have to face and have a, find a way to open dialogue among all of us to be able to come up with recommendations that really are recommendations about our future, I believe. So I go back and I think about this, I think about 55 years ago, and I find myself a cowboy from southern Idaho in this role, and I think, what a special opportunity as an outdoorsman, as a person that understands that my two grandkids ought to have the opportunity that I had 55 years ago to see such magnificent creatures. And so we really have a cheap treat this evening because um, Dr. Colby um, has written an extraordinary book and uh, we have the opportunity this evening to have him uh, share his insight as a historian. Um, as a person that uh, I know from my conversations um, this evening with him is someone that has a long-term perspective in regard to the orca and how we viewed them in the past, the actions we took or the actions we didn't take. He um, is a professor at the University of Victoria. 
He was born in Victoria, British Columbia, raised in the Seattle area. He worked as a commercial fisherman in Alaska and in Washington State. He's the author of The Business of Empire, United Fruit, Race, U.S. Expansion in Central America, and the book that we have the opportunity to acquire tonight, Orca, How We Come to Know and Love the Ocean's Greatest Predator. That is the subject of his talk this evening. Everyone, please join me in welcoming Jason. This is, this is on now, lovely. What a great crowd. Uh, I want to just start by saying what an honor it is to, to be a part of this series, uh, Town Hall Seattle, even if it is uh, homeless at the moment, uh, is an extraordinary part of the city's intellectual life, its political life. It's really a, uh, an amazing opportunity for me to speak uh, as part of this series. It's also a wonderful opportunity to, to speak during Orca Awareness Month, which, which uh, is recognized by um, my, my home state of Washington, my adopted state of, or my adopted province of BC, um, our neighbors to the south in Oregon. Not always by our federal governments on both sides of the border, but, but uh, certainly, certainly by us here in the Northwest. So my new book delves into issues that are politically, politically charged today. Captivity, the history of captivity, environmental damage, the survival of the southern resident killer whales, certainly the, the recent campaign launched by the Lummi Nation to bring about the return of Lolita uh, from the Miami Aquarium where she's been for the last 48 years. But I, I want to say that I also had very personal reasons for writing this book. In the 1970s, my father helped capture orcas on both sides of the border. And during my childhood, growing up here in Puget Sound, he wrestled with the meaning and the pain and some of the guilt that came with that past, particularly as, as killer whales became increasingly iconic in the Pacific Northwest. And that was, of course, before the documentary Blackfish drew the attention of millions, not just here, but around the world, to, to uh, the question of captivity for orcas. Today, as Dr. Peirce just, just uh, noted quite eloquently, the orca is a central part of our region's not just ecosystem, but identity, culture, certainly tourist industry. And the southern residents, those 76 endangered in the population, they're the most studied population of cetaceans, dolphins, porpoises, and whales, most studied in history. They have, as I'll make the argument here a little bit today and as I make in the book, they've been also the most influential in our environmental politics, not just here in the Northwest, but, but internationally. And they are definitely, make no mistake about it, on their way to extinction, unless, unless creative and, and uh, uh, fierce action is taken. So I set out in this book to, to make sense of how we got here. How did we go from fearing and shooting and, and slaughtering 
to loving this apex predator so quickly from really the early 60s to the early 80s. What does it say about them? What does it say about us that that change happened here, happened so quickly? And, and in the present, certainly, what is our moral obligation to them? What is the, our moral obligation to the southern resident orcas who helped, I, will, I would argue, change us for the better? Well, the key to this process, as I'm going to lay out a little bit in this talk, is, was the, the fact that we came to see them not as interchangeable specimens, as, as uh, you know, indistinguishable black and white masses flowing through the water, but as individuals with their own connections, their own families, their own potential relations with us. And the key to this, jarring, counterintuitive even as it might seem, Historically, the key to this was, in fact, captivity itself, which transformed popular and scientific views of the species from the fearsome killer to the lovable orca. Now, for centuries, the impression was of that terrifying killer whale. And it was the maritime industries all around the world, but certainly you know, we're most familiar with those off of northern Europe and then North America, the maritime industries of whaling, fishing, sealing. It was the men that worked in these industries that really shaped popular and, and early naturalists, early scientists' visions of this species. And it was a fearsome picture. Orsinus orca, they called it. Now, most of us don't know our Latin anymore, but Orsinus orca can be translated as demon from the netherworld. The men who worked on the seas thought about them that way, and they used those terms actually interchangeably. We think about the, word, the term orca as being friendly and cozy now, but in fact, it's not a new term. Uh, throughout the 19th century, uh, writers, whalers used killer and orca very commonly, and both conjured a predator that didn't just compete for valued resources, literally stealing away harpooned whales sometimes, uh, uh, snatching away seals, hunting, the salmon that fishermen chased, but in their eyes, potentially attacked and ate people. Writing in the 1870s, whaling captain Charles Scammon, who was himself famous for, for slaughtering gray whales in the waters of Mexico, called orcas, quote, marine beasts who spread, quote, terror and death to every ocean. Decades later, the director of the Bronx Zoo declared, quote, the killer whale, or orca, is the demon of the seas. On the Pacific coast, indigenous whaling peoples, such as the Macaw of what is now Cape Flattery, and the Nuchalnuth of western Vancouver Island, sometimes hunted orcas. Uh, they found it very difficult catching them, and in fact, uh, one theory is that they sent off uh, uh, troublesome teenage boys to chase them and just say, go, go catch the blackfish. Burn off some energy. Testosterone, as one orca scientist told me, is a poison. But commercial whalers generally on the west coast ignored killer whales. And this was true after World War II as well. In contrast to Japanese and Norwegian whalers in the post-war period who killed thousands, thousands of orcas in those decades, I actually only found one case in the post-war period of commercial whalers in the Northwest taking one. It was actually the Coal Harbor Whaling Station on 
on Vancouver Island that killed this orca as, as one of the residents of that town told me when he was present on the request, a contract request from, from the Disney company uh, which wanted to, to stuff and display the whale in California. But even if they weren't hunting them in these years on the West Coast, the perception in North America certainly of killer whales as pests and potentially man-eating ones at that only grew in those years. And you see lots of different images, but I'm going to show you my all-time favorite. So Stag Magazine, December 1953. I had to assure my mom that this is not the kind of stacks that I usually dive into in my research, but you'll notice that most of the men probably bought it for that top story, sex, <laughs> sexual practices of American women. But uh, it shows uh, an angry, enraged killer whale spilling these two men on this, on this, uh, this raft, two burly, strapping men uh, into the into the sea, this is the vision we have here. And I'm gonna go out on a limb, I don't have confirmation on this, but I'm gonna go out on a limb that a lot of you know, men in the Navy saw this, saw this picture, reading Stag. And months after this issue ran, a US, a NATO base with US Navy men in Iceland, at the request of the Icelandic government, uh, carried out a, an expedition against the orcas in the North Atlantic, strafing them, in several different uh, um, campaigns. And, and, and this is a, a campaign celebrated in Time Magazine at the time, this is 1954. Uh, and by the accounts of journalists, uh, killing between 100 and 200 killer whales in those, in those forays. Those actions were hardly surprising in the context of the time. The Navy diving manual up until the mid-1960s described killer whales as, quote, ruthless and ferocious instructing divers to get out of the water if any appeared. As one famed diving writer uh, uh, wrote in his, 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 his diving guidebook, quote, there is no treatment for being eaten by the orca except reincarnation. <laughs> it was a quirk of geography that made this place, the Pacific Northwest, the crucible of change. The region's population centers in the 20th century sat on Puget Sound, the Strait of Georgia, the Strait of Juan de Fuca, a trans-border marine ecosystem we now call the Salish Sea. And this was also a large portion of the main range of what scientists would later label the southern resident killer whales, three pods, we now call them J, K, and L, which rely almost exclusively, well, primarily on Chinook salmon. As late as 1880, they may have numbered as high as 250 individuals. But industrial fishing came to the region then. Industrial fish traps the size of football fields. Commercial fishing fleets that brought falling Chinook runs as well as growing human violence toward, toward killer whales that were seen as competitors. Also critical in the, mid in the, in the 1930s and 40s in particular beginning, was the remaking of the Sacramento and the Columbia Rivers. Dams, destroyed salmon runs, and other factors as well. By the 1940s, Hanford was dumping nuclear waste, immense amounts of nuclear waste, into the Columbia River, which the US government declared in 1966, quote, the most radioactive river in the world. 
All this change likely drove the southern residents to spend more time foraging in the Salish Sea, where fishermen, growing numbers of commercial and increasingly sports fishermen as well, regarded them as threats to salmon, potentially threats to themselves, and frequently shot them. For their part, scientists based in the region, and particularly scientists based at Seattle's Marine Mammal Biological Laboratory, the, the modern version of it now is NOAA's uh, uh, National Marine Mammal Laboratory, had a very different uh, uh, mandate at the time. The lab then, this is, this is the one that sits on, on Lake Washington on Sand Point, Magnuson Park, it viewed, the, the scientists there viewed orcas as a threat to resources, commercial resources used by the American government and, and, and uh, commercial enterprises. The lab in particular managed the northern fur seal harvest uh, uh, in Alaska. And this was the main interest they had in killer whales. How many northern fur seals did killer whales eat off the Pacific coast? Through the 1960s, researchers based there regularly harpooned orcas in cooperation with the whalers of, of California to study their stomach contents to determine if they were eating northern fur seals. 1961, the Seattle Times celebrated one such kill in which the lab's esteemed scientist, Bellevue resident Victor Sheffer, described orcas as bloodthirsty. And this, and this uh, opportunistic killing of, of orcas continued through the 1960s, well, until 1967. Uh, this is one uh, killed off Morro Bay. This is a um, large male. Uh, and this is a researcher who was working in Seattle at the time. Things went further in British Columbia, where officials at the behest of fishing lodges mounted a 50 caliber machine gun just north of Campbell River on Seymour Narrows to, to, to essentially protect the, the sport fishing industry by killing orcas that passed by. Now, they never fired it at killer whales because in a moment of clarity, they realized that, that you know, bursts of 50 caliber machine gun fire might also chase off the tourists and the sport fishermen. Now it's at that, this moment, the early to mid 1960s, at the height of this violence globally and certainly regionally, that, that a change came and it came from live capture. And it all began by accident, in fact, by a capture that was intended not to be a live capture. In the summer of 1964, the Vancouver Aquarium attempted to kill a young killer whale to use as a model for a sculpture in its foyer. Set up on East Point on Saturna Island, harpooned the whale with a harpoon that should have killed him, the young, young calf, but miraculously, it didn't. When this youngster didn't die, they led it to Vancouver. And there, the, the whale, they were very confused about, about the, the sexing of killer whales then, and so they named the whale Moby Doll, believing that, that the only explanation for it being somewhat friendly toward people was that it was female. All kinds of talk about the feminine temper of Moby Doll and such. Um, and for two months, uh, uh, the aquarium held it there. It was only displayed for a day. It doesn't make a massive impact on popular perceptions. But scientists were able to, to interact with the whale. Nobody got in the water with it, but, but eventually started hand-feeding Moby Doll. Uh, when he eventually died, about two months after capture, it was revealed that, that uh, 
as one newspaper reporter, because remember, some pretty, some pretty adolescent humor in the 1960s, declared Moby Doll was in fact Moby Dick. Now the key change, the key transformative change came right here in Seattle, on the Seattle waterfront. The Seattle Marine Aquarium, which no longer exists, but was owned by an entrepreneur named Ted Griffin. Started in 1962, built in 1962 during the Seattle World's Fair. And Griffin had uh, uh, you know, displayed lots of sea life, including seals, sea lions, but he had this dream, this obsessive dream to befriend an orca. And he searched for ways to capture one. And all, you know, all throughout Puget Sound, but failed. And in the summer of 1965, fishermen off the little town of Namu, BC, northern BC, accidentally caught a large male orca. Griffin went around to all the waterfront merchants, including Ivor, Ivor's acres of clams, asked for cash to buy this whale, flew up to Namu, BC, bought the whale with a duffel bag full of cash, and built a makeshift floating pen to transport the whale, now named Namu, 450 miles south to Seattle. And this captured headlines, not just in Seattle, but around the world, uh, and captured massive public attention when it approached Puget Sound. This is a crowd of thousands on the Deception Pass Bridge. I'm gonna tell you right now, the 1960s had very different ideas of child safety than, <laughs> I mean, I've been to that bridge and I wouldn't be carrying my kids on my shoulders. This is a shot of, of, of Namu's arrival on the, on the pier, Pier 56, where the acting mayor uh, uh, and the lieutenant governor both, both greeted Namu and Griffin, presented Griffin with a key to the city. This was a great, considered a great attraction for, for the Seattle waterfront. Now, no one believed Griffin's promises that he would actually get into the water with this monster. No one that anyone knew of in history had ever swam with a killer whale. But he told people repeatedly he was going to, and then one day on the Seattle waterfront, he slipped in. And this became a shocking scene to people. Griffin and his whale swimming, and Griffin emerging from the water repeatedly without being eaten. The two eventually performed the very first shows, killer whale shows, off Pier 56. Millions would read about this relationship, this bond in a, a, a still famous among orca lovers, 1966 National Geographic article. Lots of the scientists I interviewed for this book cited that article as the beginning of their love affair with killer whales. And many more would see uh, Namu and Griffin, actually footage of them in the fictionalized version of, of Namu's life um, oops, I should have shown you this. This is Namu, this is a shot that I opened with Namu performing at Pier 56 with the Coleman Ferry Dock in the background. Namu the movie comes out in the, in the summer of 1966, same producer as the television and movie uh, a Flipper. This is shot in Rich Cove, right close to Port Orchard, right across the way here. By that time, Namu had died of pollution in, in Elliott Bay, uh, uh, a bacterial infection. But his impact in that year was twofold. First, the public marveled at his gentleness that seemed to, to, to just belie the reputation of this species, his gentleness with Griffin. And second, more momentously, his popularity convinced oceanariums around the world to acquire their own orcas. And in the following year, 
Griffin and his new company, Namu Incorporated, started supplying them, with whales captured almost entirely in Puget Sound, including SeaWorld's first killer whale. SeaWorld bought a young female killer whale caught in Puget Sound, wanted to name that whale Namu. Griffin refused. That was a copyrighted name, and, and so they decided they would name her She Namu or Shamu, which became, of course, the, the Mickey Mouse of SeaWorld, right? Captive orcas drew crowds to these oceanariums, giving most visitors their first close view of cetaceans. And for many visitors, their first sense of whales, orcas, but of whales, as individuals with personalities. By 1970, some 30 million people had seen captive killer whales. And those people weren't just spectators. Many of them were scientists. And I can't overstate this enough. Scientists with the first, historically, the first access to study live killer whales. Prior to this, it was shoot and dissect. They not only studied their physiology, their diving mechanisms, their acoustic capacity. This is when there was confirmation that, 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 that killer whales had used echolocation, used biosonar. But they also came to know them as individuals with personalities, and that had a profound impact on scientists as well. One of those individuals I want to mention who was, who was, who was captured just across the way, in Yukon Harbor, just across, just across you know, from Elliott Bay, one of those individuals was named Scanna. Caught in, the mar in February of 67 and bought by the Vancouver Aquarium in, in, a month later, so March of 67, Scanna didn't just draw visitors to Stanley Park. She captivated a young researcher named Paul Spong. Spong was from New Zealand, who's a traditionally trained, uh, 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 really uh, you know, studying, studying the anatomy of the human brain. Um, got this job at the Vancouver Aquarium initially to study dolphins, but also to study this new killer whale. And he, he at first tried a very simple test to assess her visual acuity, to figure out how, how well do, do killer whales see out of the water. And it was a, it's a really simple test of, of uh, distinguishing, distinguishing between a card with one line and two lines, and they shifted the cards, the distance between the lines. Scanna took a while to, to, to pick it up, but eventually she did. And she started answering almost perfectly day after day after day, until one day it changed. Scanna started answering wrong. Not just wrong sometimes, 100% wrong. What, how do you explain that as a scientist? The scientist who's seen animals mechanistically. Paul Spong couldn't figure it out. There's obviously a, an element of agency here on, the, on this animal's part. Scanna's deciding, I'm not going to do your test anymore. I don't like your test. I am bored. One day, Spong, I'm hoping not to pop my microphone off here, one day Spong took off his shoes and his socks and he was dangling his bare feet in the pool. Scanna was doing laps and he was pondering this creature. What, what's making her tick? Why is she doing this? What's the problem? She's swimming around, she swims closer and closer and all of a sudden she opens her mouth and rakes his bare feet with her wolf-like teeth. I won't, I'm wearing a microphone, so I won't scream like he has reported he did, but he screamed, ha <laughs> pulls his feet up. She circles around again. He brings the, he gets up the courage to put his feet back in. She didn't really hurt me. And she does it again. <gasps> Eleven times they do this dance. Eleven times he pulled his feet up. On the twelfth, he found the courage to keep his feet in. And after that twelfth pass, 
She didn't get a reaction. She stopped. And Paul Spong realized, Paul Spong, the researcher, realized he was the subject of an experiment. (laughs) This was mind-blowing to him. It doesn't just transform his idea of Scanna, but his relationship with animals, with research, and ultimately it politicizes him. It brings a break with the aquarium. He goes off on his own, becomes a pioneer in wild killer whale research, as well as, I'll come back to in a moment, a key figure in the anti-whaling campaign. But meanwhile, while all that's happening, the captures are ramping up in Puget Sound, and they culminate in an event that is still remembered by those who who were alive then uh, as a pretty infamous moment in this history. And that's in August 1970, when Griffin's company, Namu Incorporated, unknowingly, I should emphasize, captured all three pods of southern resident orcas in Penn Cove off Woodby Island. It's important to note that there was no regulation at the time uh, uh, for, or- for orca capture. All of them could have been at that moment removed and sold to oceanariums with, with raging de- demand all over the world. For the orcas there, as well as the human witnesses, the event was traumatic, and the people that lived through it still talk about it. Griffin, when he realized what had happened, that they had too many animals to handle, immediately ordered half of the whales released. But activists that night, angry at what they were witnessing, tried to cut the rest of the whales free. Pen coves got vicious tides, and when the nets were loose from their anchors, they collapsed. The older whales were able to avoid them. The youngest calves were not. Three young calves drowned. Griffin and his partner, Don Goldsberry, opted to conceal the deaths, sink the bodies, kept several of the whales for sale before releasing the rest. Among those young whales kept was a young female who would go to Miami Seaquarium and become known as Lolita. She's still there. When the deaths were discovered, the the bodies were discovered, the public backlash was severe and contributed to a push first at the state level in Olympia and then at the federal level to protect orcas and marine mammals. 1971, Washington State passed regulation on orca capture, didn't ban it, but started regulating it through the game department. And the next year, the US Congress passed the Marine Mammal Protection Act, a sweeping, extraordinary piece of legislation that doesn't have an equivalent in Canada. While that was going on, the Save the Whales movement was emerging and it had ongoing ties to orca captivity, ones that are often forgotten now. In 1973, after meeting the writer Farley Moat in Vancouver, Paul Spong decided he had to do something against commercial whaling. And he lobbied Vancouver's new organization, Greenpeace, to look into the issue. Greenpeace, most forget, had been founded as an anti-nuclear organization, had, had no interest in whaling. But he lobbied the organization's leader, Bob Hunter, and invited Hunter to come to the Vancouver Aquarium to visit Scanna with him. And Hunter did. There's a press conference there. Spong's about to launch uh, a private diplomatic mission, essentially, to Japan to convince Japanese whalers to stop. And he brings Hunter down where Scanna, who hasn't seen Spong in a couple of years, this is in 1974, greets Spong and then meets Hunter, who's very nervous. Uh, This is a giant animal with pointy teeth, remember. And eventually Hunter comes, 
you know, comes up with the courage to lean down and Scanna rubs against him and eventually shoots out of, well, gently shoots out of her water, out of the water and lightly grasps his head in her mouth and holds it there and then releases it. Now, this moment in Hunter's memoirs and documentaries on Greenpeace is seen as a transformative moment for Hunter, and it is. I mean, he writes about it as just a, a mind-blowing moment. And it often goes down in Greenpeace lore as an encounter of, of Hunter with wild nature. It's easy to forget that the moment was only possible because of the captivity. I mean, it, and in fact, the behavior itself, grasping his head, was a trained behavior. Obviously, that's not going to happen in the wild. Hunter goes on to, to launch a crusade, or to help lead with Spong, a crusade against commercial whaling over the next few years. In June 1975, the organization manages to find Soviet whalers off the coast of California and get a few seconds of footage that then becomes what they were looking for, the mind bomb to, to explode in people's heads and show them how horrific whaling was. One of the reasons, I and mean, people had seen footage of whaling you know, in the 40s and the 50s and 60s. What made this different was, first of all, you had footage of activists trying to stop it. But you also had people for the first time seeing this footage you know, on Walter Cronkite's broadcast, thinking about whales, in this case sperm whales, as individuals who were getting killed, as families who were getting killed. It's a different optic. Meanwhile, back here, well, back in this region, in BC, a researcher named Michael Big was making a breakthrough. And many of you, if you're familiar with killer whale science, must be familiar with this name, Michael Big. He was making a breakthrough that would take that change, thinking about killer whales as individuals, to a new level. And really, cetaceans as individuals. Working partly with captive animals, this is a shot of him with, with Haida in Sealand in 1973, putting, uh, trying out a radio telemetry device that he would then use on a released whale. Working partly with captive orcas, he developed a system for identifying individual animals by their dorsal fins, the cuts and the nicks on their dorsal fins, as well as their distinctive saddle patches. Other, or, other, other scientists, especially based in the U.S., were resistant to this idea. What do you mean you can identify individual whales? What, by taking a picture in the water? And they argued the only way to identify and track individual animals was to catch them and to mark them. And they tried many ways to do this in Puget Sound. Dry ice branding, laser marking. But big system ultimately won out. It's accepted in time and it becomes the way that ever since we have been able to identify individuals and then understand matrilineal structures, pods. It's the reason we know so much about them now. And that was critical to understanding that these are indeed families with these tight-knit social structures. And that had already become central to public views by 1975 and 76. 76, when SeaWorld comes to Puget Sound, and conducts what I can only call an ill-advised capture in Puget Sound. Now, if I were pitching this as a novel, my editor would say, you know this part, SeaWorld's capture, it's not very plausible. It's stretching plausibility. No one's gonna believe this. Luckily, this actually happened, so I didn't need to invent this. It occurred 
within sight of the state capital of Olympia, where legislators literally days before had been discussing the possibility of making Puget Sound a whale sanctuary. And not just that, but it occurred just days before the first Orca Symposium in history was about to be held at Dr. Peirce's former, former school, Evergreen, right? Which, as we all know, is right next to Olympia. And one of the top aides to, the, to Governor Dan Evans was actually out on the water with friends when this happened and tried to stop the capture. You can't make this stuff up. I didn't have to. The public as well as these state officials who see it, are outraged, and protesters in immediately besiege the capture site. The state government, led by, uh, uh, well, initially led by Ralph Monroe, this, this aide, but, but ultimately approved by Dan Evans, Attorney General Slade Gordon, sue SeaWorld and the federal government over this capture, and eventually, to, the, to great applause in Puget Sound, bring about the end of captures in the state. Such was the affection that, that orcas had generated in the region. And I think it's little wonder then that the next year, in 1977, when Paramount tried to capitalize on Jaws, the Jaws phenomenon, by releasing a movie with even, which, which director, the director called an even bigger, badder monster, it didn't do well in the Northwest. Orca, killer whale, who bites off a... Uh, 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 the leg of, I'm, I'm forgetting the actress's name now. Um, oh, absent-minded professor, apologies. I will say this about this movie, if any of you are thinking of running out and seeing if you can find this, this is an hour and 32 minutes of your life. You'll never get back. <laughs> so, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. But that changed, I mean, that made this such a laughable mo movie in the Northwest, you know, this is not what, what orcas are. That change hadn't come, in, hadn't come everywhere, as, as the events of the next few years made, made clear. In 1980, the Soviet Union shocked many when it reported that it had killed 916 killer whales in that year's Antarctic hunt. 916. And of the females examined on their decks, 141 of them were pregnant. For researchers in the Pacific Northwest who had painstakingly identified individual whales and their family structures, this carnage was unimaginable. The next year, Michael Big and other experts from the region traveled to Europe and convinced the International Whaling Commission to stop the harvesting of orcas. And it was, of course, the next year when the commission, lobbied forcefully by Greenpeace and other organizations, passed a whaling moratorium. By then, Orcas were becoming icons in the Northwest. Whale-watching companies began to appear in the 1980s, and especially the 90s, and officials who had once targeted orcas were now charged with protecting them. No one typified this shift more than that Bellevue resident I mentioned before, Victor Sheffer. He had spent his career supervising the killing of animals for, for commercial industries, especially the killing of northern fur seals. Like other researchers, he had thought about orcas as pests, as specimens to be studied through dissection. It was he who had described them as bloodthirsty in 61 in the Seattle Times. But Sheffer, too, had lived this change. 
He had been president of the Marine Mammal Commission in the late 70s. Started to see marine mammals, killer whales differently. And how did he explain this? Well, in the Seattle Times in 1994, he said, quote, seeing them in aquariums individualized these creatures. They were no longer just whales in the abstract. This is one of my favorite shots of, uh, of, of uh, this era I've been speaking of. This is right off of Manchester. This is, this is J-Pod. Some researchers believe they've identified Granny, the oldest uh, uh, southern resident who recently passed away in this photo. When Sheffer was interviewed in the mid-90s, the southern resident killer whales seemed to be enjoying a recovery after the end of live capture, nearing 100 individuals by the late 1990s. But that trend has not continued. In the past two decades, as the human population of the Salish Sea has spiked, the southern residents have dwindled. We now have more than 100,000 people in the Salish Sea for every one resident orca. Today they number just 76. I should emphasize, we hope. We haven't had a great count yet uh, this summer. And although we enjoy them on both sides of the border, they rely primarily, partly because of the damage to, to, to the Sacramento River, the Columbia River, the Chinook Runs, and Puget Sound, they rely predominantly on the Fraser River in the Vancouver area for their, their critical Chinook runs. And those Chinooks are vanishing. And the Canadian government's decision to, to take over and guarantee the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline recently can only threaten this, their access to this last food source, last reliable food source. And with it, threaten this population of orcas who I can't emphasize enough taught us to love their species and helped us rethink our own priorities. So I want to actually leave us with some, just a few questions rather than conclusions. I think we have to ask ourselves on both sides of the border, what do we owe them? What do we owe them for what they've given to us? What is our moral debt, in other words, to the southern resident killer whales? And amidst debates over uh, uh, fishing regulation, pollution, uh, uh, acoustic pollution, the repatriation of, of uh, the return of, of Lolita from the Miami Seaquarium, I think we should also ask us how the history I just laid out in a sketch and certainly do in much more detail in my book, how does this history help us not just understand how we've changed, but help us find a path to healing and redemption and understanding? and forgiveness. And I'll leave you with an image of my journey through that. All right. That's, there you have it, folks. Jason Colby, thank you so much for that. I'd like to invite Les Purse and Stephanie Soline, co-chairs of the Governor's Orca Recovery Task Force, onto stage for Q&A. Um, there's a microphone the two of you can share, and you're welcome to sit down there. And folks who have questions, now is the time. Uh, who's brave enough to, to kick it off? Or if maybe there's any, uh, before we have a first question, if either of you would like to respond, Stephanie or Les, to anything you heard. Well, um Thank you, Jason. Um, your book, I, I think, is both a powerful history of, of 
where the orca have been in our world and, and also in our region and how we have viewed them. And I guess what gives me hope is that we can learn uh, from our mistakes and we have an opportunity now to come together um, and make a very heavy lift, uh, but a lift that I think is possible if we all come together uh, to try to save these animals. But really, in saving the orca and the Chinook salmon that, we, that they depend, we're really going to be saving, uh, as Les said, ourselves and our quality of life that is so important to who we are. I want to acknowledge the First Peoples, uh, the tribes both in Washington, but the First Nations in Canada, who have been critical partners in the work uh, that we're doing both on the orca, but have worked for decades on recovering the salmon. And um, we have an opportunity in working with the tribes, learning about the traditions and how to take care of this earth in a way that they are doing now, but also wanting to share with us. Um, and, and look at the way we develop, look at the way we are treating this land and this water that we call home. So Jason, your book is a very powerful testimonial to our past, to, but also to, I think, uh, a future that we can make if we all come together, and that's what the task force is going to attempt. And we can't do it without your help, so we really appreciate everyone being here tonight. I would only add that I think in the time that Stephanie and I have had discussions and met people around the state who are involved in this effort, you really have to appreciate the fact that there are a number of people in this state that have been committed to the health of our sound and the wildlife that have provided an effort that uh, has made a difference in such a way that that has prevented things from getting worse. And they have to be acknowledged. It's all these organizations that have been committed to and concerned. The point now is, is that more and more of our citizens have to understand what's at stake. That's why this is so powerful this evening. Um, and to, to do as they did in the 70s, when they realized that we have animals that are a part of us that provide so much to our environment. And uh, we're hoping that more and more people will come and enter into this discussion. Any questions from the audience? If you don't mind coming down using the microphone. Hi, thanks for the interesting talk and the history, giving uh, the history. Um, I was wondering what's being done. I know the noise pollution uh, damages the echolocation system, and I was wondering what recently is the current thoughts are on how to resolve the problem. The noise from boats. Um, and yes, so in on. fact, um, as Les said, uh, 
in his remarks, the task force is looking at the three threats that uh, are facing the orca, and, and one is noise underwater uh, from boats and ships. And we have a working group made up of uh, the whale watching community, the recreational boating community, uh, the maritime community. Uh, we're working as well with uh, our neighbors in Canada. Um, there's been a lot of research um, that has been done and, and more that is needed, but we know that um, both the whale watching and recreational boaters that follow the southern residents when um, they are in convenient locations, that that noise, um, as well as the ship traffic out in the uh, deeper water, they create different types of noise, but both sounds interfere with the orca's ability to echolocate. What we've learned is that they, they need to echolocate to find the Chinook. And while we don't have a lot of fish out there, if we can lower the volume around them and lower the stress level from boats that um, get too close, if we can figure out how to slow down the larger ships to lessen the noise that they make, it allows them to find the prey that exists. And so one of the things that the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife has just announced, and the whale watching com community, the commercial whale watching community is also supporting, is a no-go zone off the west coast of San Juan Island where the whales have been coming. They haven't been coming lately. We're actually not seeing the southern residents uh, in uh, the Salish Sea like we used to. I reside on Orcas Island. And um, so that was a big part of uh, everybody's summers was enjoying those whales. So we're, the no-go zone is uh, an attempt to give them some quiet space. There's also other feeding areas and socialization areas that are being looked at to try to create, again, voluntary no-go zones. I should say that it, it is voluntary. But they're really getting the word out, so we hope that will help. Oh, I'll add one little thing. Oh, I guess I don't need that. I've got this script. Um, the, the, government of Canada, or the government of Canada has, has done two positive things recently, so I should add these since I, since I focused on the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. One is, one is some pretty serious restrictions on, on uh, sport and commercial fishing uh, to, to try to help the Chinook runs. But the other is uh, a pretty significant funding of uh, uh, research on acoustic pollution. Um, it's mostly being run by a really extraordinary scientist named Lance Barrett-Leonard, who's based at the Vancouver Aquarium, who's been a cutting edge uh, researcher on the DNA of, of orcas in the area is one of the reasons why we have such detailed knowledge of their kind of evolutionary history. Um, my only fear about things like that is, is governments are often more eager to throw money at more research than to actually take action. And it, and it can often, you know, there's, there's uh, uh, very good evidence already that we know that, that, you know, acoustic pollution is a serious problem. And I would actually add, yes, it's a problem for Southern residents. It's actually more, it interferes more with, with 
the, with the mammal-eating transient or, or big killer whales because they hunt generally by passive listening because their prey can, can hear their, their chatter and can pick up on their echolocations uh, clicks more, the uh, seals and sea lions. So they generally hunt in silence. Um, and when there isn't silence, when there's you know, a, a, a very loud Salish sea, it's actually very hard for them to locate prey as well. I, I want to share something that's uh, on the optimistic side. There is a new company that is a startup called Pure Watercraft, and they are developing an electric outboard. And it's not just a quiet little battery-operated trolling motor you've seen on some boats. It's actually going to be like a 40-horsepower uh, outboard that is quiet and doesn't use any gasoline. And it's right here in uh, Seattle at Gasworks Park, and uh, I've just learned about it. Um, but again, I, that's one of the, looking at the technology and working with the maritime industry on ways we can retrofit both large ships uh, as well as do a better job with the design of outboards to make them more quiet. I also want to give a shout out to uh, the Port of Vancouver, which did a study this summer. Uh, it was an, it was, uh, a, they had a ship slowdown. They asked ships coming into the Port of Vancouver if they would uh, voluntarily slow down um, their speeds to lower the noise, and they had like 56% participation, and they've been studying that, and um, I think they may be considering doing it again, and also the Washington State Ferries joined with them along with that slowdown, and part of what the governor is uh, asking both in our executive order, but he's also created a blue marine task force to green up the maritime industry. They're looking for ways to quiet our own ferries. So that's good news. Uh, you've been talking about the southern resident uh, orcas. How do they differ from other groups of orcas? And are all orcas members of a single species? That's a great question. Um, first of all, scientists are not in agreement uh, of uh, how to answer that question. There's, there's many who argue that they are in the process of specia speciation, uh, splitting into different species. We do know, partly from Lance Barrett-Leonard's uh, DNA studies, that um, the two populations I just mentioned, uh, marine, marine mammal hunters, big killer whales or transients, and our resident whales diverge uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago and you know, haven't interbred, don't have anything to do with one another. They're quite xenophobic, actually, about these sort of different cultures. Um, that's, that's a difference. Uh, there's a third type of population in our region that mostly hunts sort of uh, along and even off the continental shelf um, called offshores that, that mostly hunt uh, sleeper sharks very, very deep. Uh, we know the least about them. Uh, and then there's another population of, sort of analogous uh, uh, cultural population to, to the southern residents that are called the, the northern resident killer whales. Those range from southeast Alaska to about midway down Vancouver Island. Um, very similar lifestyle to the ones that are in the Salish Sea, but they're doing much better. They, like, like the southern residents, they're victims of human violence, not so much capture, but lots of shootings. Their numbers were down to about 120, 130 in the 1970s. Now they're up over 300, uh, and doing much, very differently than the southern residents. And, and you know, the, really the three explanations for that are cleaner water, right? 
Uh, they don't live in an urban lake, which is what the Salish Sea is becoming. So cleaner water, much more food abundance, uh, and a lot less traffic, a lot less acoustic uh, damage. Now, around the world, you know, if people think there's between 100 and 200,000 uh, orcas around the world, all different kinds of ecotypes or cultures, um, they're very much prey specialists. So, you know, some of them off New Zealand hunt and dig up stingrays. Some off South America, you know, uh, uh, tend to hunt seal pups off the, off the beach. Uh, the, um, the specialists that you see out of Monterey Bay tend to uh, hunt seals, sea lions, and also migrating gray whales, so lots of different types. Um, one of the reasons that makes them such, one of the things that makes them such effective predators is that specialization, but it's also what makes them so vulnerable because they're actually starving amidst a banquet here. It's not that we have truly a banquet in the Salish Sea, but we have lots more fish they could eat, you know, different, different salmon other than Chinook, lingcod, but they, def they don't seem to very much, and, and because the, it had been a very effective strategy for them until really recently to focus on Chinook salmon. They were abundant. You catch one Chinook salmon, it's equivalent of sev you know, several sockeye salmon. So, that's part of their struggle right now is that they're struggling to adapt. They're, they're very conservative, actually, in terms of uh, their approach to problem solving. Yeah, I was just at uh, Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket, and uh, they were famous for killing whales all over the world in Nantucket. Uh, but now they have they're very serious about protecting the right whales migrating off the coast. They have mandatory noise sanctuaries. The boats have to slow to 10 knots. Most of the noise is caused by propeller cavitation, not by the engines. And the, it's, it's an exponential thing. So when you lower the boat from 17 knots, like our ferries, to 10, it drops dramatically. We also have the largest fleet of ferries, in the, in the, I think, in the world, one of the, one of the largest 20-some-odd ferries putting out noise that travels at, uh, I think it travels up to nine miles or so, at uh, rock sound, uh, 120 decibels, if I understand. So uh, what do you think the political implications of slowing, slowing our ferry fleet by 50% would be? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'd say, I would just add another one of the big challenges for the right whales off the East Coast is fishing gear, like entanglement in fishing gear, and, and that's, that's actually the biggest problem that they're having right now is, is they're getting entangled in, in uh, lines for lobster and crab fishermen. And, and um, so they're working on tech, technological innovations of actually lineless traps um, that, that can be activated and rise to the surface. Um, I'm hoping that, that there will be larger scale innovations like we just heard about of, of electric and silent uh, 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 engines that can reduce the cavitation noise and can reduce the, the engine noise here. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Well, it's, the thing is, it's not engine noise, it's the propellers. It doesn't matter whether it's electric ferries or not. Right. It's all little bubbles popping off. Yeah, well, I mean, slowing, slowing, every, slowing everything down seems to help. Right? It's going to be a dramatic. Yeah. I, would just, I would just add to your comment that your, your, what you shared with us is very important because in our discussions around noise here, um, hopefully what you shared and the science and the work that's, that has occurred in other places helps us realize what's possible, other strategies. Um, so thank you.
That's good to hear that. I um, noticed the word conversation uh, being used early on. So uh, I'd like to have a conversation. Um, and um, I, my name is Mitsui Cook. I'm from Hawaii, but I live here and I go back and forth. And I collaborate with an organization called World Ocean Council. And this organization uh, uh, holds conferences and uh, uh, gathers uh, corporate companies, the people that are concerned about sustainability within the, the marine uh, corporations. And uh, I've attended three, three of these conferences. Uh, this is a global organization, also a UN affiliate. Uh, I've, uh, so with that background, I'm a former university teacher. I used to teach at Stanford and University of Hawaii, was tenured. Um, I'm just giving a little bit of background. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, given we're here, uh, t two things I want to um, uh, point out. One is uh, what what can we do as public? This is a very uh, uh, intelligent public you have here. So uh, uh, given what you know, what can we do about this? Because we can have lots of information, but in the meantime, what what do we do? Well, the first thing, is what you're doing now, and that, in, in my opinion, that is something I obviously value, and that is, and you too, and that's education. It's understanding what the challenges are, and then ultimately, given the knowledge that you have, helping provide the kind of input that's going to really be valuable. When we get to the final stage of this, and let's have, you know, there are gonna be some very difficult conversations around each of these areas, ultimately, we, we understand that, but when we get to the end of this discussion in the fall, there will likely be hearings at the legislature um, around each of the recommendations that come up. When we finish formulating the recommendations, we're gonna be getting them out to the public and getting their feedback as well, and letting the public that is interested, like everyone that's here, know what the next steps might be. But more importantly, what are the issues that that are the tough decisions that have to be made in this regard. So one, following what's going on, that's why this is so important to us, to hear the dialogue, and then as we come to the end of this year in regard to policy, to be present and to give your input in regard to the emerging recommendations in that area. That's what I would say. Um. Les is right, we definitely are gonna need your help and support with the recommendations, so calling legislators. But I, in, uh, I also serve on the leadership council of the Puget Sound Partnership. The Puget Sound Partnership is a state agency that's tasked to recover and protect Puget Sound. And there are a few things I just wanna put out there that we've been working very hard on. Um, I don't know that what you can do as an individual other than um, maybe we all have to be exploring ways to change our lifestyles. But a couple areas that we're seeing uh, are problematic is development, 
that is not uh, sensitive to its impact on the environment. And that happen is happening in neighborhoods and communities all around the region. So paying attention to that, we have uh, a great concern about habitat loss, especially near shore habitat. Property owners who armor their, their waterfronts put up bulkheads to protect it from erosion and they, because they don't really understand that erosion and the natural movement of water on the shore uh, is really valuable and important to the nearshore life of the small herring and smelt that the salmon eat and then the orca eat the salmon. So being better just stewards of our properties, uh, being careful about what we put down the drain, what we put on our lawns, um, also, cars. Not only do we all know we drive too much, but as Seattle grows, more and more cars on our freeway is creating polluted water that is running off into Puget Sound, and studies are showing that this, they call it stormwater, but it's really just pollution off our freeways and our roadways from our brake treads, from the tire treads that particles that come off our tires, from oil leaks. So, so for sure, be better. Make sure your cars are well maintained. We should all be trying to use more public transit. But honestly, the big issues we're going to be asking you to support are more resources for infrastructure to address stormwater in Olympia and more resources to do a better job educating property owners about what they can do. Um, and we're also gonna be looking for more uh, enforcement of the laws that are on the books. Uh, we've gotta get more public support for the environmental regulations that we have in place. And th they really were there for a really important reason. And we need people to stand up and say, we want these protections of our environment. And um, too often, our, those voices aren't heard, and it's the people that you know, don't like government and, and, and don't want to see their lifestyles interfered with. I'll, I'll add something, hopefully, um, doable. We have a great, I mean, my study of marine environmental history has taught me two things. First of all, that, that, that um, despite our perceptions of the, bound, the boundless ocean that we could never exhaust, that, that nature, including our, our marine ecosystems, are much more fragile than we ever imagined. Anything you take out, anything you put in has an impact far beyond what you can imagine. And the other is that nature is extraordinarily resilient if you give it a chance to heal. And um, we, have a great, we have a great model in Washington State of this. It's on a small scale, but the, the undamming and the healing of the Elwha River, which you know, is, a, is a small piece of the range of the, of the southern resident killer whales, but it's a model for what needs to happen in this state in particular. I mean, uh, British Columbia has other problems. I'm not going to take it off the hook. But, but you know, dams in Washington State and in Oregon and in Northern California remade the entire you know, ecosystem and, and hunting strategy for, for Southern residents. And if we really care about them and this ecosystem, we need to let it heal. I mean, those, those, those rivers by themselves you know, if you can take down dams that aren't essential for, for power generation now, those rivers can heal and they can start 
producing their own fish without hatcheries. Um, and, and not that hatcheries aren't essential in, in lots of uh, areas, but that, so if there was some particular thing to lobby for, it would be taking down some of the dams on the Snake River that are unnecessary, um, and using the Elwha healing as a, as a model, I think. Thank you. Um, so the second, the second item here, um, uh, James Cameron, the producer, director, recently spoke in, in uh, Australia, and he, he said that um, humans have been using the ocean like a toilet and uh, just throwing stuff, all kinds of stuff in the ocean. And uh, it's our lives. We, we come from ocean and without a healthy ocean, we don't exist. And uh, nobody likes to hear that. However, um, in, in uh, studying and thinking and going to conferences, the World Ocean Council Conference, uh, the topic of uh, plankton has been discussed and phyto, phytoplankton, I've learned, is the foundation food for marine life. It's a plant. We're running a little bit low on time. I'm sorry. Okay, I so so what I want to say is um, there, there's not enough phytoplankton, which is all over the world, because there's too much pollution. The function of phytoplankton is to give off oxygen and to absorb uh, carbon dioxide. So that's an issue that needs to be addressed. Uh, it's been in, there have been articles about it. I look, I've Googled it, uh, and there is, a, at Sydney University, a project called Ocean Nourishment. And policies need to be established, that's what I've learned, about how to nourish the ocean so that phytoplankton can, can do what it's designed to do. And the topic of not enough food, the, the fish don't have enough food, there's just too much plastic, for example, coral, plastic, phytoplankton, plastic. So. Um, that's, that's what I want to share, that I'll, we need I'll, to look at phytoplankton. I'll just answer that really quickly. The, the, uh, you know, the loading of carbon in our atmosphere and into the oceans and that ocean acidification that's coming is, is transforming the ocean in ways that most people can't even imagine. Two out of three of our breaths come from, from phytoplankton, and uh, uh, we're on our way to having a very different ocean than all of us grew up with. So absolutely, that's an that's a, that's a enormous issue for our time. We need trees, which are plants, and we need phytoplankton, which are plants. That's, that's the magic of creation. It's an amazing design. Thank you. Thank you. And as I said, we're running a little low on time, but we have time for these last two if we go, go quick. Okay, I'll be quick. Uh, my name is Amy, I work at the Seattle Aquarium, and uh, it sounds like there are some things that we can change, uh, noise levels, um, you know, habitat restoration for salmon runs, um, and preventing toxic contaminants from going into the Puget Sound. But there are also things that are out of our control, like the increasing trend towards male births in the southern residents. So, we can't control that. How far are we willing to go if the population continues to decline? Um, 
I don't think we'd ever do artificial insemination or anything like that. So what, do you have any idea of what we could do other than the big drivers that we've already talked about? I would just say that, that um, we're past the point politically where it would be feasible to, to you know, capture them and, and you know, try to re-engineer them. Um, it, even in the way that you know the California condor was the reason that, that they you know survived. Um, it, it's very possible that we're looking at a relic uh, population that that's beyond the capacity to recover. Um, but I'm actually hopeful that if we if we can provide them with enough to eat, um, that uh, that they might surprise us. Um, I'm I'm not in favor myself of of any kind of active intervention like that, I just, I, I can't imagine that that would be either politically acceptable or, and it would be too disruptive to them, but, um, but, you know, you know, strange things can happen. You know, nature is, uh, like I said, more resilient than we give it credit for sometimes, as long as we give it space to, space to breathe. Yes, no, I'm, I think the main, what we know is they need food, and, and if they, one of the reasons that the transients uh, are doing so well is that even though they have their own struggles, they can find prey in the sea lions and the harbor seals. And so when the whales are fed and fat, uh, they can reproduce, they can withstand noise and stress better. Um, they, they really cannot address, the, we've got to address the toxics, but the most important thing we can do right now is figure out how to get them more fish. So we're looking at everything from increasing hatchery production of Chinook, we're looking at fishing uh, you know, regulations and uh, ways to quiet the water so they can find the fish. But I think feeding them is just critical at this point and that will help with their fertility. And yes, you're right about the makeup of kind of the, the, the kind of sexual reproductive demographics and it's complicated and mm -hmm. I think we just hold out hope that if we can improve their quality of life that that will, that will impact their reproduction a bit. Thank you. Hi, my name is Magdalena. I actually volunteer at the Seattle Aquarium. Um, you've talked a lot about like, local and state legislation, and I know that the southern residents are listed on the Endangered Species Act. Have you seen any other federal support for the southern residents from either the American or the Canadian governments? Well, on our task force, we do have um, the NOAA, National Oceano Oceanographic, uh, what is it? Administration, thank you. Um, and uh, Lynn Berry, who has been studying the Southern residents and has been working at NOAA since they were listed, um, has been, is on our task force and they're partnering with us. And we're, both the Department of Fish and Wildlife in the state is working closely with NOAA, for example, on the no-go zone mm -hmm. that was uh, uh, put forward, the voluntary no-go zone, uh, in the San Juans, that was a result of NOAA's research. So they're very strongly partnering with us. We get, you know, funds uh, for Puget Sound restoration from EPA and from NOAA. NOAA does uh, puts funds in to uh, restore our salmon runs too. Thank you. 
I'll just I'll just add. I'm I'm hoping that the the government of Canada um, shows more commitment than it has in recent years. Let's leave it at that. Well, we need the federal government to put more money and more support in as well. I mean, it's not uh, there's not been enough investment in uh, the Puget Sound, and um, and we cannot restore it with the limited dollars that are uh, that we have to work with right now. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that the public can do to try and help you guys get that funding? Well, I think what Les said is is is. Get engaged, like the Orca Salmon Alliance, uh, which does have a table here. We just actually uh, participated in Orca uh, Month kickoff on Sunday, Les and I, at Golden Gardens. That is a great organization because it's a coalition of many groups. And get involved with those groups and follow their websites and their alerts because um, we'll be working with them as well and keeping them abreast of the work of the task force. They're following our work and they will tell you things you can do to, you know, to influence your elected officials. And it's not just in the state, uh, your state legislators. County commissioners play a really big role uh, in what happens uh, with development and, um, are, you know, in your counties. So that's a really important group of uh, policymakers as well. I would just say there's nothing more powerful than a knowledgeable community of people that are concerned mm -hmm. at the federal level or state level. And while we have this effort going on with scientists and looking at these three areas, ultimately, I think we've had these discussions to have the public of our state understand in more detail about what this issue is and the differences and what's at stake will make all the difference state level and the federal level. And I just want to give a shout out to our congressional delegation. Um, we have, we just came back from Puget Sound Day on the Hill. Uh, Congressman uh, Denny Heck and Congressman Derek Kilmer a couple years ago formed the Puget Sound Caucus uh, in the United States Congress. And all of our congressional delegation is part of that. They've also got some members from Oregon now. But they have really been helping raise awareness about Puget Sound as an estuary. We are the largest estuary in the United States by water volume. Um, and we are part of a group of national estuary uh, kind of a coalition that does receive federal funding. And um, so our congressional delegation is involved and um, we just were back visiting with them. They're well aware of the ORCA uh, dilemma and crisis and um, they wanna work with us. So um, I, I, I just want you to be aware of that. They, they really do care. Um, but you know, they're, we're working with an administration that um, does not make the environment a priority right now. So it's it's tough uh, to get the funding that we need. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> thank you all so much. <laughs> Stephanie Celine, Les Purse, and Jason Colby, thank you so much for this amazing book and this history.